I invite you to turn with me as we begin today to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. We will be concluding this section that we actually began on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter Sunday, uh, considering the uh, mystery of the resurrection, the fact of Christ's resurrection, the order of the resurrection body, and the reality of our resurrection life. As we begin, uh, let me ask you to consider this. Three times I have been divided doing what God had decided. Twice a garment was the tool that led me to obey God's rule. Once God's son I did embrace. Once the ark stood in my place. What am I? I am the Jordan River. This is a riddle. Riddles are types of word puzzles that are widely used, have been for centuries, both for entertainment and as a test of wisdom. Riddles allow the speaker to obscure valuable information Information from those who do not have ears to hear, and while at the same time disclosing information to ears that are discerning, that can hear the hidden embedded message. Typically, the language of riddles functions on two levels. It conveys a straightforward meaning and, at the same time, a symbolic or allegorical point that is understood only by discerning individuals. Let the wise hear, the writer of Proverbs says, an increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Riddles have been around for centuries. Riddles are even embedded in the, the word of God, the text of uh, these scriptures that we have before us. Samson spoke riddles to his enemies. Ezekiel, the prophet, presents us with a symbolic riddle comparing King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to an eagle. We find riddles in the New Testament. One notable, mysterious one is the one we find in Revelation 13, which conveys to us a number and asks us to calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Many have scratched their heads over that. Jesus sometimes himself used riddles, word puzzles to communicate information in the presence of his opponents. Such is the case when he asked his enemies, how can Satan cast out Satan? Here's another riddle for you. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday every one of us will be his sermon. Who is he? 
His name is death. Jesus. Now, in a sense, he spoke these words as a, as a word puzzle, as a riddle to the woman at the well. And we know that Jesus spoke it, but he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Who is this? Well, we know this is Jesus. As he asked that question, do you believe this? The writer of Proverbs, verse 25, chapter 25, verse 2, says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of man, is the glory of kings. It's interesting, isn't it, that God is glorified by concealing information because a certain level of mystery about spiritual matters increases our sense of wonder. God hides some truth so that we must search it out. It's sort of like uh, looking for seashells on the seashore or panning for gold in a, in a river. Rarely do we find the most valuable treasures scattered on the surface or immediately. We have to dig. We have to search. We have to be diligent in our search. And so it is with the Word of God. I wonder, could it be that God includes riddles in the Bible because treasured truth must be dug for, must be searched for as we rely on the Spirit of God to direct our digging and our discovery. The first letter of Paul to the Corinthians was written to correct several errors that the church there, the Corinthian believers, had come to believe in their search for the answer to questions about life and death and the resurrection from the dead, what this was all about. You see, Ideas have consequences. I've said that before, and I'll probably say it again. If our thinking is based on wrong ideas about the way things are, then our doing based on those ideas will ultimately lead to living incorrectly, and our thinking about the way things should be will be flawed or faulty. One of the errors that some of the Corinthian believers had come to believe is that there is no bodily resurrection from the dead. Some even today, in the church today, do not believe in the bodily resurrection from the dead for some reason. Chapter 15 is Paul's corrective to that false doctrine and that wrong teaching. Here he brings to a conclusion what he began back in verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15, where he said, But some will say, How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? He asks and answers those two questions. What is the nature of the resurrection? How are the dead raised? And what kind of body? What is the manner of the resurrection of the dead? And he says that the resurrection is understandable. It is reasonable. It's logical. 
And he also says in verses 45 through 49 that the resurrection of the dead is certain because Christ has been resurrected from the dead. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we begin reading in verse 15. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and the mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade and fall. But the words, these words of our Lord God endure forever. Lord, our covenant-keeping God, the one who makes promises to his people and faithfully keeps them to the end. Father, we look forward to our resurrection life that in a sense we can experience even now through faith and trust and him who is the resurrection and our life, direct our thoughts, my words, all of our hearts, that we might hear your voice and attend to them in a right way. Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The emphasis here in these verses that Paul has presented to us is upon the necessity, the requirement of transformation, of change in order to enter into heaven. We see that in verses 50 and 53. Both the living and the dead must be transformed. And the resurrection, that transformation, will take place at Christ coming again, signaling the final defeat of the enemy, that is death. The Westminster Confession, chapter 32, paragraph 2, says this. At the last day, such as are found alive shall not die, but be changed. And all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies and none other, although with different qualities, 
which shall be united again to their souls forever. See, here's the answer to that question. Is it possible for the dead to be raised? With what kind of body will they come? Paul asks in verse 35. He concludes this chapter with a powerful promise of a bodily resurrection for Christians and victory, ultimate victory in Jesus. That those who were found by God's grace, trusting in him at Christ's return, will be resurrected to newness of life. Today we live in the reality of that resurrection. The first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. But we also live with something else. We live with the hope that there is something more. Oh, this life may be good. It might be great. It might be wonderful as God pours out his blessings upon us. But what a day that is going to be when we all get to heaven and sing and shout that victory. We live with a hope of more. That through Christ the end has begun, but it is not fully experienced. This is sometimes referred to as the now and the not yet. Today and that hope of tomorrow. So Paul presents to us the fact that there must be a great transformation. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 51. Now, Paul says, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I once had a beta fish. Many of you may be familiar with that sort of fish, a fighting beta fish that lives in the rice lands of the world. But particularly if you know anything about fish, you know that they are made from water and they can't live long outside of it. Oh, my fish, sushi was his name, was sort of like us. He seemed perfectly happy and content within the boundaries, within the confines of the bowl, breathing that water of life. He had great freedom in that container, in the confines of that environment that his master had made or given to him. But one day, he jumped out of the bowl and the safety of that water. And guess what happened? It was a while before I found him. He died. He died because his body was not well suited for breathing air. See, in a similar ways, our bodies now are well suited to living upon this earth. But if we were to try to jump from here to there, from earth to heaven, into that environment our master has provided for us there, 
leaving the place that he has given us here. Immediately going into the presence of God, we would not live one second. It would be like jumping into the reservoir without uh, a life jacket and without scuba gear. Our bodies, as they are now, are not designed to breathe that glorified air of heaven, that rarefied air of our Lord. They first must be transformed. For some, that will happen suddenly. If we happen to be here when Christ returns, others die, others sleep until he returns. So today we live in hope of a great transformation in light of what will be a great triumph when Christ returns. For those who are trusting in Christ, the power of death has been broken. Death is no longer master over us because death no longer is master over him and if we are in him we experience what he experiences but when Paul says this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. This is not just a New Testament doctrine. Not just something we find out of the mind of Paul or out of the lips of Jesus. It's a doctrine that comes out of the Old Testament. You consider Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. It says, He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and He will remove the reproach of His people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. The minor prophet Hosea in chapter 13, verse 14 said, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion. Will be. Given to God's people. Paul says, Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin are what? They are death. We deserve God's wrath and condemnation. God's law, Paul says, reveals his standards. And when those laws are broken, they reveal our sin nature. If there were no law, he says, there would be no transgression. Because it is the law that points to our sin and our fallenness. The law brings about wrath for where there is no law, there is no violation. 
The law shows us our sin. And the result of our sin is death. Death's victory has been overcome by Christ's perfect obedience that the law requires. Death's deadly sting has been taken away. The stinger itself has been plucked out through Christ's resurrection. The sting of death is powerless over the dead. Imagine for a moment you're riding in the car or your truck or vehicle with your best friend. And as you're driving, the windows are up, pouring down rain outside, so you can't let the windows down. You notice a bee flying around there in the vehicle, in the cab with you. Your best friend calmly reaches over, opens his hand, grabs that bee with his fist. The bee stings him and not you. You are highly allergic to bees. You haven't brought your EpiPen either, so there is probably no hope for you if you were stung by that bee. The bee stings him. He releases the bee, but that bee has lost its sting. No longer can it affect you. It is not a threat to you anymore. I'm told by those who handle honeybees that they can only sting once and then they die. You see, Christ has taken the sting of death for us. Death cannot hurt us or even harm us. It is a passing from this life to the next and if we are die before Christ returns, we simply sleep, waiting for his return. Death is not the result of decay through normal human process. It is the result of the deadly poison of sin itself, which becomes all the more energized in our lives through our acquaintance with sin and with the law. So we exult in Christ's victory over death. Paul reminds us that victory is the final triumph over sin that brings death into the world and over the law that has emboldened sin in our lives. Both sin and the law have already been overcome at the cross. And so we live in a time of great thanksgiving. But thanks be to God, Verse 57. Who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus' perfect obedience to the law and the satisfaction he made for his victims, those who trust in him have been released from the law as their means of righteousness. Our righteousness is in Christ. Not in obedience to the law. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, taking that sting of death. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. For those who are in Christ, death has no more power because God has freed those who are in Christ from the power of death and the fear of death. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of that same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You see, for those who are in Christ, death is but the passing of our spirits from this life to the next. We go immediately into the presence of God, the leaving of earth and going to be with Christ. And in Christ's victory over death, death's sting is removed. We read in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. That he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. We look forward to that day and that time when that is a fact, that is true. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. We experience that in a small measure now. But not fully yet. And Paul gets to the end of this passage in verse 58 and gives us, based on all of these words, all of this doctrine, all of this teaching, therefore. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Paul always bases his exhortation, these therefores, for doing upon doctrine. That is, he bases his practice, his teaching, upon principles. Therefore, when our hope in the reality of the resurrection gospel is clear and certain. That is, when our ideas, our thinking is correct, we will have great motivation to be abounding in the work of the Lord as we overflow, in a sense, with overdoing, as if we could overdo what God has done for us. See, work is not a result of the fall. Well, it's been affected by the fall. It's been affected by sin. It is laborious at times. It is filled with thorns and thistles and difficulties. But work is not a result of the fall. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. And because God has so abundantly overdone himself for us, we deserve nothing from him. We should determine to overdo ourselves 
if that were possible, in service to him and for him, to whom we owe everything. Let us consider, the writer of Hebrews said, how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. As we consider this idea of work, of toil, being steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, we must know that reasonable rest is important. It's necessary. But until the Lord returns, there's work to be done. Every Christian has been bought with a price. What is that price? The precious blood of the Lamb. And should work uncompromisingly as the Lord has gifted and leads each one to serve. Using our money, our time, our energy, our talents, our gifts, our bodies, our minds, our, our sanctified spirits should be invested in nothing that does not in some way contribute to the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our praise and our thanksgiving must be given, in a sense, hands and feet. Not just words upon our lips. And so we conclude asking and answering these questions. How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they have? Well, the dead are raised transformed. They are raised triumphant. They are raised victorious and thankful. They are raised always abounding in the work of the Lord. Paul ends here as he began back in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, saying this. Now I make known to you, he says, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now I make known to you, he says, that I labor for the Lord. There he was concerned because of the denial of the resurrection of the dead by some, whether his own labor was in vain. And after all this strong evidence for the resurrection that he has presented, he comes to the conclusion with such faith as the ground, the basis for continued work in the Lord, knowing that our work is not in vain, that we don't simply live and breathe and have our being here and now and die then. There is nothing else. We are working that we might one day stand in the presence of God with a hope of the resurrection gospel. The writer of Hebrews, I think, summarizes this so well in chapter 12, verses 1 through 4 where he has just gone through a list of great saints of the faith who have persevered 
knowing that their toil was not in vain. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on who? On Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Dearly beloved, we worship our God who has called us into his presence, who has provided the way and the means for us to be with him, not only now, but for all eternity in body and soul. Thanks be to God for his most indescribable gift. Heavenly Father, O Lord, we pray that as we consider this gospel, the resurrection gospel, that we will be changed in how we live, in how we think, in how we hope even for the reality of tomorrow as we consider living with you body and soul, saints of all ages forever. We pray in Christ's name.